0: Welcome to Let It Lopate at Large, I'm Let It Lopate. This coming Sunday, the 2021 UN Climate Change Conference will begin in Glasgow. Some 20,000 people will attend, but what will they accomplish and what must they accomplish? A growing number of scientists are voicing concerns that we're already at critical tipping points triggered by climate change. But Derwood Zelke, the founder and president of the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development, is confident that we can drastically reduce the risk, particularly if we adopt the lessons learned from the the past successes like the 1987 Montreal Protocol that addressed ozone depletion. In a new book, Cut Super Climate Pollutants Now, the Ozone Treaty's Urgent Lesson for Speeding Up Climate Action, Derwood Zelke and co-authors Alan Miller and Stephen O. Anderson examine what must be done immediately. It's one of the Resetting Our Future series published by Changemakers Books, and I'm very pleased that it brings Mr. Zelke to our show now, hello.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me on. Uh,
0: we mostly hear about, what the, about the harmful impact of carbon dioxide, but aren't there a number of other harmful greenhouse gases, the, the superclimate pollutants of your title?
1: You know, that half of warming is caused by carbon dioxide. It's hugely important that we slam on the brakes there and shift from fossil fuels to clean energy as fast as we possibly can.
0: But But, I don't know if you just heard this report that was just announced (laughs) from the World Meteorological Organization that showed that carbon dioxide levels surged to 413.2 parts per million in 2020, rising more than the average rate over the last decade, despite a temporary dip of emissions during the COVID-19 lockdown.
1: Yes, I did see that. And this follows the... Um, the emission gap report, the production gap report, rather, from the United Nations Environment Program and Stockholm Environment Institute just uh, last week that concluded the same thing, that the pledges that were made by the parties to the Paris Agreement, which includes the entire world, uh, are falling way short of what's needed to slow down the emissions from fossil fuels. So, yes, the evidence is Fossil fuel emissions are going up, mm. and uh, and that means temperatures are going up, and that means that extreme weather events and other impacts are going up as well. So, this is uh, this is very bad news. Mm. Now, there are strategies for addressing this part. I'll come back to them as we go along uh, this afternoon. Sure. But to answer your first question, there are other uh, climate pollutants. In addition to CO two, except for methane,
0: are average Americans likely to have heard about any of those other pollutants?
1: Well, let's let's go through them. So everybody knows about black carbon soot. Mm If you've ever been on a bicycle behind an old bus Mm -hmm. or truck or even a diesel car that emits that plume of black smoke, that soot, it gives you, um, uh, it, it makes you sick. It can give you cancer. And uh, it's also one of the super climate pollutants because it causes immediate warming and even more when it actually gets on snow and ice because it darkens their reflective force. So everybody knows about that. They may not know that it's such an important climate pollutant. They sure as hell know it's an important pollutant, uh, air pollutant. Then you've got, um, you know, methane. And if you have a leak in your house and you see smell, natural gas, that that's methane. Right. Methane is the main component of, of so-called natural gas. It's really fossil gas. So people have a familiarity with, uh, with natural gas.
0: It's also and, a, a natural outgrowth of farming, isn't it?
1: Well, you have... Um, cattle, for uh, example. You have uh, methane that comes from ruminants, so mm-hmm. cattle and sheep. Yes, they um, produce some methane. And then you also have methane from the manure lagoons. Mm-hmm. So if you go to a dairy farm, you'll see a huge pit that uh, contains the, you know, the, uh, the feces and the urine from the cattle. And, um, and that uh, is emitting methane. Now, there are solutions for this. Um, you also have methane coming out of landfills. So if you're um, unlucky enough to live next to a landfill sometimes they leak and you smell this horrible smell um, like rotten eggs and so people have this familiarity and then another thing that i should explain about methane is it's a precursor for what we call tropospheric or low-level ozone that's basically photochemical smog. i grew up in los angeles you know, when I was young, that was a huge problem. Gotten much better. But people do know that tropospheric ozone is a problem. So we're familiar with these things, but not necessarily as climate pollutants. When you put them together, however, they represent the fastest and the biggest bite we can take out of near-term warming. And this is hugely important. So if we were to reduce these non-CO2 plumes which are very short-lived in the atmosphere we could um, cool the planet faster than any other strategy now this is this is important because right now the warming trend we're on is just about to set off self reinforcing feedbacks where the earth starts to warm itself mm. and your, your newscast just before this show, Uh, announced what's happening with the Amazon. So we're already losing so much of the Amazon. We're not losing it. We're destroying it, that it is becoming a source of emissions rather than a sink that pulls CO2 out of the atmosphere, safely stores it in the trees and the the soil. So right now we've destroyed about 17% of the Amazon.
0: Hmm. Well, Bolsonaro has... Well, it's, it, been it a, it's, it's a political issue in Brazil, isn't it? it, it, and, it, it and it's it a racial issue before. because uh, the people who live in the Amazon are people of color. It's
1: um let's let's simplify it. Okay? It started long before Bolsonaro and uh, uh, the the clearing is largely to facilitate uh, soy and beef industries. Mm. So, Indigenous peoples, by and large, want to protect their indigenous territories in the Amazon and, um, and, and leaders before and especially now with Bolsonaro, who, by the way, has just been accused of crimes against humanity for his um, destruction of the Amazon. Um, that This has been going on for some time. So, uh, but we can, we know how to stop it. And if you stop cutting down your your forest that's providing this great function of pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere, you get fast mitigation that helps us avoid the tipping points. So, you know, this is this is really the game here. You know, if we go past the the point where we lose the Amazon, and the, the other great tipping point is the reflective force in the Arctic sea ice. So, a tremendous amount of incoming solar radiation hits that white surface and bounces back safely into space. But when, and we've already lost about half of that reflective sea ice. And the scientists tell us that when we lose the other half, we're going to add the equivalent of 25 years worth of climate emissions, about a trillion tons of CO2 equivalent on top of the 2.4 trillion tons we've put in since pre-industrial times. Well, if we, Basically, that's game over.
0: If we cut carbon dioxide but fail to cut the super pollutants, what happens? Uh, if we only cut CO2, couldn't there be an increase in global warming?
1: Well, yes. In fact, you're right. So when you shift from fossil fuel to clean energy, which we absolutely have to do, in the short term of 10 to 20 years, you actually end up with a little net warming. That's because when you shift from fossil fuels to clean energy, you not only reduce CO2, carbon dioxide, but also reflective pollutants, sulfates principally, that are currently cooling the planet. So when those fall out, when those reflective particles fall out very quickly when you stop emitting, uh, when you stop fossil fuels and CO2 stays in the atmosphere you know, 25 to 40 percent last for 500 years or more well that differential means that you get some net warming uh, by reducing the cooling and uh, having a slow time to reduce the warming. so, so this means you, know, you have to think of it like uh, like a series of races. So, we have to win the 10 year sprint. Maybe it's going to be 20 years, but let's say it's 10 by cutting the super pollutants. They're the fastest way to sl- slam on the brakes and actually produce cooling. And then you have to win the marathon to 2050 by getting rid of fossil fuels and shifting to complete clean energy, which is absolutely possible to do. And then actually, you have to win another race, which is an ultra marathon. By the end of the century, we have to learn how to pull the equivalent of up to a trillion tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere faster than the natural cycle.
0: Mm. And some experts have uh, warned of the fall of civilization. Stephen Hawking even warns of the extinction of our species.
1: Well, I think we're facing the greatest challenge to civilization um, that perhaps we've ever faced, I and mean, because what we're going to see from the, the warming is um, the shortage of water and food. Hmm. We'll see mass migrations um, that are mixed in with these extreme weather events. I mean, look at uh, look what's happening around the world just this past year with wildfires and uh, and hurricanes and so on. And that mass migration will threaten the very fabric of civilization. Our governance system, as we've seen with the COVID pandemic, not as strong as we need to take this, uh, this challenge from, from the extreme weather and from the mass migration we're facing. And, and it could be you know, much, much worse than people imagine because if we let the self-reinforcing feedbacks take over we pass these tipping points, we're going to be facing many meters of sea level rise. Maybe it'll uh, unfold over decades and even centuries, but it's going to start pushing people away from the coast, even as um, the storms intensify, the floods intensify. So this climate chaos is going to be You know, a a challenge that we, it's not clear that we can meet with our current governance approach. So what happens? Well, uh, the strong man comes in, the authoritarian leader, and says, let's suspend civil liberties. We'll take over. We'll become a military junta, and we will protect uh, the rich. The rest of you, you're going to be outside the castle walls, you know, and it's going to be Lord of the Flies for you.
0: Your co-authors are Alan Miller, a lawyer, and Stephen O. Anderson, the director of research at your organization. Uh, what did each of you them exactly. contribute to this work? Or each of you, the three of you?
1: Well, the three of us— uh, You didn't divvy up, up the chapters, minutes. did you? <laughs> no. We, um, we've we worked together uh, since 1975. So Alan was, uh, was fresh out of law school— um, I was assigned uh, to be his mentor. Steve Anderson joined. This is a group um, it was called is called the uh, Environmental Law Institute, but it was brand new in those days, very small group. So we all got to work together. Steve is a PhD economist from Berkeley, although he thinks much more like an engineer. Um, Alan has a master's degree in natural resources, as well as a law degree, very talented people with very broad experience. And Steve worked for decades for EPA and uh, did brilliant work there. Alan with um, the World Resources Institute and then the International uh, Finance Corporation, part of the World Bank. So deep experience in different fields uh, all related to uh, international environmental law and policy, and um, and for the for the last probably 20 years for all of us, we focused just on climate change. So, so we we had a natural way of collaborating, and um, and and it was a pretty smooth uh, process. You know, we somebody would write a chapter, somebody would edit it, the next person would edit it, back and forth. And uh, adding ideas and, uh, and thinking of how how we can use the book. I and mean, we wrote the book um, for, uh, for activists. I and mean, we wrote the book because we had something we wanted to say that could move people quickly to action. And, and I think it's, it's very important to make that point. This is not an academic exercise. Wow. I've, I've written the, the academic textbook on international. Environmental Law and Policy, and it's 1,500 pages. You know, we just finished the sixth edition of that with another group of co-authors. But this one is a slim volume designed to read on the plane or the train or after your bicycle ride hmm. and uh, and learn how to save the planet.
0: And you're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Derwood Selke who, with Alan Miller and Stephen O. Anderson, has written um, Cut Super Climate Pollutants Now, The Ozone Treaty's Urgent Lessons for Speeding Up Climate Action. It is published by Changemakers Books. You've been uh, involved in this, worked on environmental policy and law since the 1970s. Were greenhouse gases and climate change on the radar then?
1: Well, they were for the people who, who knew the most. I mean, um, it goes back to the 50s. And then and much earlier with uh, the scientists who discovered that CO2, the buildup of carbon dioxide, would add further warming. And there was one woman in the U.S. You who know, doesn't get much credit for this, but she's the first one to have published on this. Uh, there's a guy in um, in the Nordic countries, uh, uh, Aranis, um, Savant Aranis, who gets he generally gets the credit. A classic case of uh, um, someone who publicizes better uh. than uh, than the original publisher, but um, but but the. The issue entered into policy discussions as early as the 60s. Lyndon Johnson was briefed uh, in the, the 1960s. So this issue has been uh, percolating along, but there's there's one very important bump in the road. It's more than a bump in the road. It's like a, a, you know a sinkhole, and that's when Exxon, uh, mobile, decided that they would shift from their early effort to study the effect of their product uh, fossil fuels and the carbon dioxide emissions it was producing, when they were doing peer review science work in the late 70s, and early 80s, uh, when they they had um, a research team that aspired to be you know, the Bell Labs of, um, of climate. They were predicting that this uh, product, uh, byproduct of theirs, the carbon dioxide, would cause potentially catastrophic emissions. Hmm. And, uh, and they had to do something about this. But the, the, the corporate leaders decided to take a different path. They hired many of the same people who had facilitated the tobacco industry and their campaign of deception. And they said, we're going to help you out in the fossil fuel industry here. We're going to introduce doubt into the science. Doubt is our friend was their mantra. And that doubt slowed down climate science, especially in the U.S., and as a result, slowed down climate policy um, in a way that is, uh, is going to cause us, I mean, it's going to risk civilization. If in the uh, in the early '80s, when they had the they came to the fork in the road here, they had stayed on the path of of uh, uh, the common good and shifted their enterprise to clean energy sources.
0: They could have been even
1: richer and more successful, and we would not have a climate problem today.
0: Well, it, it, we're seeing that also with. Uh... COVID-19 denialism and some other things that are going on in the world. I guess uh, whenever business interests uh, are threatened uh, people wind up uh, coming up with uh, uh, excuses or explanations that aren't necessarily true. Um, so do the climate change deniers simply not care or are they just too wedded to business interests to, to, uh, to, to uh, see the facts?
1: Boy, I, you know, this is almost a metaphysical question. I mean, the the people who discovered oil and gas, you know, a um, hundred years ago, whatever the the, the date is here, uh, you know, they they helped uh, build civilization as we know it. I mean, they did something great. They gave us hmm. cheap energy, and and we used it happily, and we built some. And remarkable things, and, and, and as a result, have the civilization we have today. But as I said, they came to a fork in the road, and now they're destroying and have been for some time that very civilization they helped
0: build. And so, in 19. 19- go ahead, finish. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think this, to some extent it's. Um, you know, it's just burying your head in the sand, but it's mm. just like the, the Facebook whistleblowers have finally come forward to say, we got a problem with this uh, company and what's facilitating hate and um, misinformation. And I, I think we're going to have to see that same revolution with um, those in the fossil fuel industry in 19- and, and the lawyers and the accountants. Uh, and engineers who facilitate and support them as well.
0: In 1992, more than 150 countries agreed in Rio de Janeiro to stabilize emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases at a level that would, quote, prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. And then the uh, the first U.N. climate change conference was in 1995. But emissions and atmospheric temperature have gone up while the consequences of climate change, droughts, floods, Explosive wildfires in both expected and unexpected places, melting glaciers and ice caps, dying corals, sea level rise, have become more pronounced. The The southwestern U.S. may be suffering the worst drought in recorded history, although there's a heavy rain today. And wildfires in Siberia were worse than all the other fires in the world combined. Yeah, uh, it's—I um,
1: mean, it's a— it, it, we're fools if we think that the UN uh, climate negotiations on their own will be sufficient to solve climate change. We've spent thirty years with this process, and I've been uh, involved since the very beginning. And during that period, climate emissions have doubled. and uh, until the the Biden and Kerry team came in. Uh, the, the mantra for what is the 26th meeting of the Conference of the Parties in Glasgow was uh, let's get uh, our act together over the next 30 years and get to net zero at that point in time. So they're saying, you know, we we didn't that good a job for the first 30 years, but uh, give us 30 more. Maybe we'll get it right.
0: Well, that's we- work. As with other climate meetings, uh, the ones in Kyoto in 1997, Copenhagen in 2009, Paris in 2015, Glasgow is being advertised as a watershed event. And John Kerry, who led the American negotiation team in Paris, uh, will be leading this one. He called Glasgow the world's last best chance to avoid ecological calamity. President Biden said he'll be there with bells on. Uh, there are also a hundred other world leaders who are expected to attend, but not President Xi Jinping of China, which is by far the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases. He he hasn't said that he'll attend.
1: Right, neither has uh, Putin from Russia. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, China's battling COVID. Maybe there's a reason that Xi Jinping doesn't want to get on a plane to Glasgow. But, you know, it, it, Glasgow can be important. But it's not so much um, what happens in the technical negotiations. It, what, it's what happens with all the energy that is focused during that two-week period. So President Biden will be there, you know, to launch the global methane agreement. Uh, excuse me, the Global Methane Pledge. Hugely important They have countries you know, they have already had um, an event uh, earlier this month with their major economies forum meeting where they had another 24 countries join the Global Methane Pledge to cut um, 30% of methane globally in the next 10 years, making it the single biggest and fastest way to cool the planet. So those kinds of parallel actions are critical and let let me just go back to the montreal protocol on substances that deplete the stratospheric ozone layer because this treaty is the best treaty we've ever created for solving the first great threat to the global atmosphere the threat we were destroying stratospheric ozone and at the same time has done more to protect climate than any other agreement, having avoided an amount of warming that otherwise would equal what CO2 carbon dioxide is causing today. So think about that. We have solved an amount of climate change equal to carbon dioxide emissions today with another treaty. And we've done it as a collateral benefit to protecting stratospheric ozone. so my suggestion to the world is and we have this in our our book on super pollutants is pay attention to the team that has won every match they've been in and see how they've done it and then consider how you can do something similar for methane and maybe move from methane to an agreement uh, on steel and one on cement and one on aluminum. You know, so you take a bite out of the climate problem and develop a governance approach that actually learns how to solve that bite uh, but instead of putting it.
0: There's another team as well. There aren't a number of politicians, lawmakers and other policy makers, the United States elsewhere, profiting from all of these things. It's been reported that Senator Joe Manchin and his family have made millions of dollars from coal. Can the U.S. or any other nation make it impossible to profit from, from polluting? Well, I mean— you know, Especially since Senator uh, Manchin is, is reportedly writing key elements <laughs> of the Democrats' climate change program.
1: Yeah, no, it's, um, there's a certain bizarreness to that. Uh, I, I agree. Um, we do have entrenched interests that are hugely powerful. And because we let money dominate our politics in the U.S., you know, we're— um, we're at the whim of the rich way too much. I mean, this is, um, this is one of the fundamental flaws of our current political system. So to answer your question, you know, can, can you go uh, after an entrenched interest that has this much money and this much power? Well, you know, what what's happening? Technology is coming along showing that it's cheaper to build renewable energy even cheaper than running an old fossil fuel facility. In, in many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases, and soon it'll be for all fossil fuels. So cost will help us a lot. Um, then there's the youth movement. The kids are hmm. angry. And well, They're gonna be suffering
0: from it in the future. I'll be dead. Oh,
1: I mean, we're, we're leaving them a world that is gonna be t- just awful. If we don't get our act together this decade. So this is what uh, Biden and Kerry are saying. You have to make the 19 and the 2020s the decade of action. This is our decade. If we get our act together and, you know, they're so they're they're good forces. I mean, again, the the cost curves comes down, the technology gets better. The um, kids are angry and they're mobilizing we're also getting rid of a lot of the old folks i mean they they say that old paradigms don't die but the people who hold them do die and then the new gang comes in and so the the sooner that happens you know the better off we are we get the the kids elected and um, have them running congress uh, in the u.s and the world
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Climate change, climate change, climate change is what we are facing. Climate change, climate change is not going to bring us down. Our future. If we all together, we can change back climate change. We're back with Dirtwood Zelke, Z A E L K E, co author with Alan Miller and Stephen O. Anderson of Cut Super Climate Pollutants Now, the Ozone Treaty's Urgent Lessons for Speeding Up Climate Action. It is published. By Changemakers Books. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM. And uh, I wonder why it has, uh, this whole thing has become political in this country. Aren't most Republicans opposed to any new legislation that addresses climate change? When, when California led states in, in trying to protect the environment, didn't many Republicans abandon talk about states' rights and try to stop California in the federal <laughs> courts? Yeah, you
1: know, I remember the time when we had the the moderate Republicans who were so good on environment, including Richard Nixon when mm-hmm. he was president. He was actually very good on climate.
0: Yeah, he and, um, uh, he, he uh, had the Clean Water Act and a whole bunch of other th- things during uh, his administration. And, and
1: absolutely, he did. And um, we had uh, during Ronald Reagan's presidency, we had the Montreal Protocol. Um, The rumor is he had, uh, we know he had skin cancer, and the rumor is that Nancy um, sensitized him to the importance of this, and he was good friends with Maggie Thatcher, Prime Minister of the UK, who was a very sophisticated chemist, so she understood the threat of stratospheric ozone depletion and uh, helped President Reagan uh, learn enough about it to agree that he would do the Montreal protocol. So, and then we had uh, Senator John Chafee, chair of the Environment and Public Works Committee in the Senate. Incredible uh, guy, just you know, great on environment, great human being. And we've we've moved away from that into the these the bickering you know, phase. I mean, uh, John McCain was good on climate. You know, he's maybe one of the last. Hmm. Republicans. So they're all
0: those Republicans but, are but, dead now.
1: <laughs> well, I, um, you know, I, I never will discount the fact that um, people can change their mind, find their courage, listen to their kids. I and mean, there are a lot of kids out there telling their parents, including in Congress and the Senate, uh, you got to pay attention to this. You got to learn and uh, and help us. With our future, so I, I think we'll see some conversions, and also the you know you look at what's happening the insurance industry; they're paying through the nose for the incredible uh, climate impacts that we're seeing through extreme weather. So you you see BlackRock and other uh, financial institutions starting to move their investments out of fossil fuel. You see the divestment movement where universities and pension funds are saying, we're not putting our money into the uh, fossil fuel industry anymore. We're moving it into the solution side because we're gonna make more money on that side. And because it's um, becoming immoral now that we know we're destroying the planet to leave our money uh, in the fossil fuel investment. So again, those forces the technological innovations, the, the youth movement, you know, there's a lot that can lead us to uh, an epic win. And I think the first one will be with methane, because methane is uh, is the single biggest and fastest way to cool the planet in the near term, slow the self-reinforcing feedbacks, and avoid tipping points. And it's also incredibly cheap. So if you plug methane leaks in your natural gas, or really should call it fossil gas pipeline, you're saving uh, your product and you're saving money. Uh, uh, We're we're able to do this very low cost and actually at a profit in most cases in the oil and gas industry. Uh, We know how to do this in landfills as well. And for most of the Uh, efforts on uh, agriculture not all we're still struggling to learn more about agriculture but we know how to do this so uh, i think we're gonna uh, i think we'll see uh, launched at uh, cop 26 in glasgow this global methane pledge and it will emerge as one of the, the big victories that give us the confidence we need to go on to the next battle, and and also be teaching us that um, taking a sectoral approach, where we take a bite out of the problem, it is a very very big bite, but it's only one bite, and and if we learn how to do that, then you have the chance to develop the governance approach to solve that piece. Well, and that's I did. Really I,
0: important, too. I did a show on this last year in which the the guest said that. If we just returned to old farming uh, techniques and herded our mm-hmm. cattle instead of putting them yeah. in holding pens uh, that we would uh, things like that, uh, letting them also just naturally uh, uh, fertilize the land uh, use it with right. their excrement yeah. that we wouldn't have these problems. so that, older that, that farming was a lot better
1: it it was and um we, you know, we should do everything we can to help the small farmer, in particular, uh, return to that. And there are a lot of young people who now think that that's a good way to live. They're rediscovering the life on the land, hmm. so the organic movement is hugely important. and And I think that's, a, I think COVID has probably pushed a lot more people in that direction, out of the cities into the country, where they can see. That you know things can grow. I mean, you can, you can, uh, you actually have a world that produces for us if we're smart enough not to destroy it.
0: Does dealing with the emission of pollutants uh, and climate change present legal challenges distinct from those involved in other areas of environmental production?
1: Well, I mean, uh, do you trust the Supreme Court?
0: <laughs> if a, well, What kind of case could even come up before the Supreme Court in this regard? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, there, there is a climate litigation going on in the United States, uh, and it's, uh, it's best kept in the state courts, not the federal courts. And that's the trend of the decision so far. Uh, there's climate litigation going on throughout the world. I mean, tremendous uh, number of cases, dozens, hundreds. Uh, Some have been successful already. The German Constitutional Court ruled that uh, Germany was not doing enough in the current decade and violating the human rights of youth by giving them too big of a burden Hmm. after 2030. So, this is a new constitutional principle in the in Germany, one that should be copied throughout the world. There have been successful cases in Australia against coal mining where the courts have said, if you look at the carbon budget, how much we have left to emit, and which is a tiny amount, just a few years worth, if, if anything, um, you can't let any single coal mine go forward because it will push us past those limits. They've denied licenses for expanding coal mines. So judges are, are um, you know, the judges are human beings who are part of uh, culture. They they have their own uh, norms that they integrate through their own learning. And climate has now become part of the the conversation of the world. So there are very few judges who aren't becoming sensitized to the importance of climate change. Now the U.S. Supreme Court has moved, of course, uh, in the rightward direction, and uh, and this is a challenge for um, for whether it'll be ideological in in addressing something like climate change. Uh, we we've yet to see what uh, President Biden might do uh,
0: to. He's apparently ret- addresses. he's apparently retooling his climate agenda to stress tax incentives for clean energy regulations and state laws. What influence can the yeah. president have over state legislators and policymakers?
1: Well, you know, he can. He has a lot of power with the, the budget and, um, and a lot of power with um, federal procurement. For example, United States um, federal government is the biggest purchaser of. Um, of most things in the country and if they decide as they are under president biden to only buy the most climate friendly products then that puts a huge market pressure on for companies to produce those uh, or they lose out on the market That's very very important uh, the, the president can issue executive orders uh, the president can set the the pace for the best technologies. The president can fund uh, innovative technologies through the Department of Energy and the ARPA-E system, um, which is um, a brilliant funding mechanism that can, and they've already put money into methane um, mitigation strategies and they're thinking about strategies for technologies that can actually take methane out of the atmosphere this is another important piece that we haven't talked about but it's possible according to the best scientists including rob jackson at stanford university and uh, professor De, um, De Richter in france uh, to take methane out of the atmosphere faster than the natural cycle and if we could do that We'd have another very powerful lever for cooling the planet. This is important because almost half of methane emissions come from natural sources tropical wetlands in particular, but also increasingly from thawing permafrost in the, mm. in the north. You mentioned the wildfires up in Siberia.
0: California uh, has the, a, a fresh water problem right now because of the the, 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 the uh, there's less water fresh water coming in because of melt.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you—that's uh, th- changing this very moment, of course, with uh, this uh, river of uh, mm. of moisture that's pounding. Yeah, but the, the ice is from the New- right north
0: The ice uh, melts but, further up. Anyway, but, uh, yeah, I, I,
1: but, yeah, no, you're right. Of course, it had been, yes, you're right.
0: You, you said uh, that the Montreal Protocol, that went into effect in 1989, was a success story. Uh, were were the Montreal Protocol and subsequent amendments legally binding in a way that proposals on fossil fuels have not been?
1: Yes, and this is a unique feature of the Montreal Protocol, which applies to all countries of the world. They're all parties. They've agreed to. Abide by mandatory measures. And what happens
0: if a powerful them. nation like the United States or Russia or China violates the agreement? What happens?
1: Well, so far, we've had very few instances of deviation from compliance, because we can measure this in the atmosphere. And uh, there have been some instances. And when there is a deviation from compliance, the Montreal Protocol has what we call a get-well system. They go to the offending party and say, we notice you're out of compliance. What can we do to help you return to compliance? And if that doesn't work, it's backed up with trade measures that can hammer uh, a country that fails to get back into compliance. That's never been applied. It's been threatened, but we've never had to apply it in 33 years. So it's um, it's a treaty that has... Uh, reduced uh, almost 100 offending chemicals by about 98% over its 33 years. So, well, it's got an well, extraordinarily good record.
0: Well, a, a mixed record, and I'll get to that in just a second, but I want to tell my audience that my guest is Derwood Zelke, sure. who is co author with Alan Miller and Stephen O. Anderson of Cut Super Climate Pollutants Now, the Ozone. Urgent Lessons for Speeding Up Climate Action. It's published by uh, Changemakers Books. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. The the Montreal Protocol has been revised nine times, um, and one of them was the Kigali Amendment of 2016, which covered hydrofluorocarbons, uh, HFCs. Didn't industry turn to... HFCs after CFCs were phased out under the original 1989 protocol. When did uh, scientists discover that HFCs are also potent greenhouse gases?
1: Well, it's, this is a very uh, insightful question. The Montreal protocol is a start and strengthened treaty. It's been strengthened, as you mentioned, at least nine times. And through a series of amendments and, and adjustments. And it's uh, it's moved from the most damaging chemicals, the CFCs, which were horrible for destroying stratospheric ozone and warming the climate. Then it moved to an intermediate chemical called HCFCs. They were much, much better. They weren't perfect, but they were better, and they, they're the chemicals that we had right then. And then from there, as we started phasing those out, Countries um, and their industries started moving towards HFCs. Now, HFCs do not destroy stratospheric ozone. So, for those who were only paying attention to stratospheric ozone, it's like, okay, we've mm. we've done our job here. But if you were paying attention to climate change, as the Montreal Protocol increasingly did, then they've realized, well, HFCs are at best another temporary solution. We better start innovating. To get to the substitutes that are even better. So yes, um, we've we moved progressively from really bad to uh, a bit better to a bit better, and we're still going.
0: And in this book, you propose a three-step plan to cut super pollutants now. What are they?
1: Well, I mean, uh, let's go back to methane. Okay. Well, let's let's go to Montreal Protocol and the so Let's. Let's we'll start with that because we have a Kigali Amendment, so we need to finish the job with uh, the Montreal Protocol's Kigali Amendment. Let's get everyone to ratify. We have 127 countries that have ratified so far. The U.S. has passed its implementing legislation, so it's already in compliance, but it still uh, is awaiting sending the package to the Senate for their advice and consent for formal ratification. Um, China has ratified. India has ratified. Now we need to get the rest of the world to ratify. And then we also need to think of which countries want to go even faster. So we could form a club for those who are even more ambitious and say, we're going to find some extra money for you, and, uh, and we're going to um, uh, help you go faster if you want to go faster. So that's, that's one piece of this is perfect the Kigali Amendment. Then second, methane. Let's go after methane with um, this Global Methane Pledge. And by strengthening the Climate and Clean Air Coalition, the Paris-based group that focuses just on shore lived climate pollutants, And it will be the secretariat for the Global Methane Pledge. Let's do that. And then let's consider when we might uh, find the inspiration from the Montreal Protocol to move to a, a global methane agreement that, that borrows the architecture of the Montreal Protocol and, uh, and moves even faster to reduce methane. And then with black carbon, which is um, the, the one that is even the worst one of all for public health, that really is a regional pollutant, so we would picture a series of regional agreements to reduce black carbon soot, um, leading with uh, public health benefits there, but also capturing the very powerful climate co-benefits. So, so I think that's that's the the simplified outline. You know, all imminently doable, and if we were successful with that, and I, I do predict that we will be we will be able to cut the rate of global warming in half and the rate of Arctic warming by two-thirds. And this is really important because, as we mentioned earlier, you've got to save the Arctic sea ice and that reflective force. We can't afford to lose that. Because if we do, it'll accelerate the collapse of permafrost, which is carbon dioxide and N2O. And that wicked cascade will lead us to the, the hothouse earth with climate chaos that will perhaps break our governance systems.
0: Well, the Trump administration reversed course on several environmental protections. Sometimes it appeared only because they knew that they could do so. and. Uh, if Trump and uh, Bolsonaro and Xi, uh, Xi Jinping simply rewrite the law or ignore it, what can be done? Can, we, uh, can agreements between nations be given teeth so that countries meet their commitments?
1: Well, again, let's go to the Montreal protocol, where 33 years every country in the world has been in compliance with very few deviations. All of which have been corrected. So we do have a model that's quite remarkable that we need to and we need to study and we need to respect and we need to borrow the inspiration and the architecture for that. Um, as you do your governance systems through law, you're also changing the behavior of the the actors, those who um, produce our energy, those who produce our products. And once they make the shift. For example, no one wants to go back to CFCs, there's no industry that wants to go back to CFCs. I mean, we're making uh, new refrigerants uh, um, under uh, the, the encouragement of the Montreal Protocol, under the mandate of the Montreal Protocol. And so you lock in technological changes, business changes, cultural changes that, that make it very difficult um, and, and take away the for going backwards. Now, in the very short run, yes, you know, a new administration can come in and, and reverse, of um, course, on policy. Once you lock in the, the changes through cultural changes, through technological changes, and through um, changes in business practices, you know, there's no going back. Clean energy is just better
0: cheaper. Well, we're we're it's pretty much crazy. out of time, but I wonder whether anyone still contends that we can allow free market forces <laughs> to solve environmental problems. Isn't trading and carbon emission credits an attempt to harness free market forces? Have there been any successful carbon credit uh, programs? And uh, you uh, got one minute. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm not I'm a big fan of... Um, First of all, uh, climate change is the the biggest uh, failure of the market system we've ever seen. Mm -hmm. So uh, relying on it to solve the problem is is foolhardy. We have got to find a regulatory approach like the Montreal Protocol. Uh, Follow that with all these sectors that we mentioned. And um, starting with methane and an epic win, give us the courage to do more and to stand up to the fossil fuel industry and and support the clean energy industry
0: in the future. Well, this is, climate change is just one of several environmental problems. We also face destruction of habitat, plastic and pesticide pollution, perhaps the largest mass extinction since the dinosaurs were wiped out. And I assume that we're going to have you back at some point to talk about those as well. <laughs> <laughs> but my great thanks I mean, if to We
1: slam you- on yeah, my, my, uh, my appreciation for your, your great questioning.
0: Well, thank you so much for being on our show. Derwood Zelke, co-author with Alan Miller and Stephen O. Anderson of Can uh, Cut Super Climate Pollutants Now? The Ozone Treaty's Urgent Lessons for Speeding Up Climate Action. It is published by Changemakers Books. It's been a pleasure, a scary one, of course. Thank you again. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to hear more of our shows, you can access our archives at WBAI.org. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you'll find links to all of our past 500 shows, over 500 shows, at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take a moment to ask you to support WBAI. We need all of our listeners who have the finances to do so to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the kind of unique in-depth content that we bring you on this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Without your help, there's no way that this is Dark station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener sponsored, can stay on the air. We don't run commercials. We don't have funding credits or whatever. Why not make that call right now in the name of Leonard Loped at Large so we can continue to bring you the kind of programming you won't hear anywhere else. Again, the number to call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 or you can go online to give to wbaiorg And our great thanks to everyone who's already stepped up to support the station in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And to all of you who are considering becoming sustaining members, we really appreciate that as well. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when investigative journalist Gregory Zuckerman of The Wall Street Journal will discuss his new book, A Shot to Save the World, the inside story of the life-or-death race Uh, for a COVID-19 vaccine. You won't want to miss it. Hope you'll listen in.